We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I heard a comedian tell a story one time about an experience that he had on an airplane. They were in the uh, boarding area in the airport, and a passenger in this area found out that there was going to be wireless internet service in flight. This was a while ago. And the passenger that found this out was delighted to hear about this, surprised about this uh, really, really neat uh, new amenity that he was going to have in flight. An hour later, the comedian said that he saw the same passenger streaming a movie on his computer and the internet starts to go out, right? The Wi-Fi fails. And the, the passenger is visibly indignant that, uh, that his, his movie has stopped working. And the, the, the comedian said his thought was something like, you know, you're sitting on a plane, uh, on a, you're sitting in a chair in the sky right, in the sky, and you're complaining that you can't watch your favorite movie. An uh, important observation. But I think that's often how, uh, uh, how things are uh, in the way that we uh, habitually deal with and relate to our possessions. For the fact is that, as St. Paul said in that epistle to Timothy, we brought nothing into this world. Everything we have is a gift from our maker, even our existence itself. And we should basically at all times have that attitude that the passenger had in the boarding area, right? Surprised wonder at the, the extraordinary thing it is that God has given us anything at all uh, and that everything we are uh, is a gift from him. But so often we take that other approach, right? And we become indignant at losing or not having something to which we think we're entitled by nature. Now, there's a solid Christian tradition that makes the case for the legitimacy of uh, something called property, right, of private property in particular, of having things uh, as our own possession, in other words. The argument, more or less, is that property follows from fruitful work. Work merits property. God intends everyone, insofar as they're able, to enjoy the dignity of a job well done and to enjoy the fruits of that work. But whenever the church has affirmed the legitimacy of private property, it always does so with a massive qualification. Yes, to each person is due the dignity of private property or of property in general, but for a Christian, how you use that property must be entirely at the service of the gospel. You may legitimately own things, but because everything you have is ultimately on loan to you from God, it's his purposes for those things that ultimately determine their proper destination. And the proper destination for all material things, Christians have consistently said, is the common good of all. One tradition speaks of this as the universal destination of goods. The church fathers had a particularly stark way of putting this. They said that whatever you have beyond what is necessary for your basic subsistence and for 
the care of those over whom you have special responsibilities, so families, colleagues, and so forth, whatever you have beyond that belongs by right to the poor. If you have two coats in your closet, they said, then one of them belongs to the man freezing on the street. Now, of course, what's necessary is going to vary depending on a person's vocation and state in life. But we shouldn't lose the edge of this sound Christian maxim. To put it in terms of today's gospel, whatever you have beyond what is necessary belongs by right to Lazarus. Let's see if we can find out why. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. What he gets instead of those crumbs is the compassion of dogs, more sensitive to the suffering of this poor man than was his fellow human being, tucked away snugly inside his mansion. Both of them die, and everything is reversed. The hungry man is filled with all good things, and the rich is sent empty away. It's a stark parable, but by no means unusual. Jesus has a lot to say about wealth and poverty. The problem with dives, as the rich man is traditionally called from the word for rich in Latin, dives, is not just the evident coldness of his heart towards Lazarus, his total failure to show mercy and compassion towards a suffering brother. All of that is bad, but it's a symptom of something deeper. His problem is that he has tried to insulate himself from the uncertainties and precarities of the world by a secure glut of possessions. Note the gate in the parable, right? He's trying to seal himself in. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem first because no matter how hard he tries, no matter how sturdy that gate, no matter how sumptuous his meals, his possessions are not going to last. It's a false security he has amassed around himself, treasure that will be consumed by moth and rust. You can hardly turn a page in the Gospels without Jesus talking about something like this. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, he says. And why? Well, because no matter how big you build your barns, God may say to you tonight, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all these things you have amassed, whose will they be? Earthly riches are uncertain and can be lost in an instant. But the second problem is even deeper, and it follows from the first. If we delude ourselves into thinking that a taller gate, a fuller meal, a bigger barn will provide us with the secure happiness we want, then we're almost certainly going to miss the real treasure for which God made us. The more settled you think you are in this world, the less likely you are to be able to taste the interior delights of communion with the unseen. The ineffable joys of the immaterial world. Those things Paul referred to in 1 Timothy, like righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 
In this world, poverty as both a material and a spiritual reality is where we find God. Blessed are the poor, said Jesus, and blessed are the poor in spirit in Luke and Matthew, respectively. And the reason he gives is the same in both. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Why? Why does the poor belong to the kingdom of God? Well, because those who have been stripped of every material or spiritual consolation in this world are all the freer to apprehend the promise of blessings beyond this world. That doesn't mean they necessarily will, right? The poor can be greedy too. Nor does it mean that the rich can't. Paul tells us, uh, tells those of us who are rich, uh, how we can at the end of that epistle today, right? He had clear instructions. Let them share with those who need and so forth. But Jesus also said pretty explicitly that riches make it harder, like a camel through a needle's eye and all that. Jesus' teachings about money and possessions are demanding. What's essential to realize, though, is that the intensity of these demands is not intended to crush us. It's intended to heal us, little by little, day by day, by freeing us from our inner attachment to goods that won't last. That's why Paul says, if we have food and clothing, if we have what's necessary, in other words, we will be content. That's not a resigned contentment, by the way, as though Paul were saying, in an ideal world, we'd have a lot more. He's saying, we already have more than everything if we have God. Nor should we think that Jesus is trying to play a kind of gotcha game with us by giving us some impossible demands. Dives had all that he needed. As it says at the uh, end of the reading, right? Uh, he has the, the, the uh, siblings, cousins to whom he wants Lazarus to go. Uh, uh, they have all that they need, right? Moses and the prophets. All that they need to fulfill God's purposes for them. No, Jesus isn't trying to play gotcha with us. He's inviting us to live more and more according to the truth that this world is not our home and that the only things we can take with us into the next world are the tokens of mercy and compassion that we've shown to others. In other words, love. Love is what we can take with us, and that's it. Now, I suspect most of you know all of this already, right? It's hard to be a Christian for very long and hear the Gospels read to us very long without getting a sense of the intensity of Jesus' teaching on these matters. The challenge for Christians is often not so much understanding the demanding words of the Lord, but knowing where to start to put them into practice. So let me offer a few words of practical counsel, three in particular. First, always try to give something. Always try to give something. When somebody asks for any kind of help, the temptation, especially in a society that so values productivity and efficiency, is to want to solve all of this person's problems as quickly and effectively as you can. Now, don't get me wrong, solving problems is good, but sometimes you can't, at least not in the short term. 
And so even if it seems like a hopeless situation, even if it seems like anything you could do would be useless, trust the Lord's command when he said, give to those who beg from you. This doesn't just apply to money, by the way. Time and attention can be a gift too, and all kinds of other gifts that we can offer in the giving of something. But it's important to recognize that giving away money is often as good for us, or possessions in general, is often as good for us as it is for our recipients. Because it trains us to relinquish our hold on something that can very easily become an idol. A created thing in which we place our sense of security. It's what an idol is, right? Created thing in which we place our ultimate hope. And if you're nervous about what the recipient is going to do with what you give, remember a story that was told about C.S. Lewis. Walking down the street with a friend, probably in Oxford, he was asked by a beggar for a few dollars. Lewis obliged. Continuing down the street, his friend said to him, you know he's only going to spend that on drink. Lewis responded without breaking his stride, yes, maybe, but if I had kept it, I probably would have spent it on drink. (laughs) Now, obviously, there are qualifications to this. If it's clear that the person is going to use what we give them for something self-destructive. But we should never assume that up front. Giving something helps create a relationship, a sense of sharing with the person in a concrete way the challenges of their situation. And that leads to the second piece of counsel. Open your heart as you open your wallet. Open your heart as you open your wallet. Especially for those who are wealthy, it's tempting to think that if we've written a check, then we've satisfied our obligation. But it's fairly clear that what Jesus is interested in is not so much the size of our financial contributions as the generous hospitality of our hearts. Remember the widow's might. The rich gave out of their abundance, but she, in her poverty, gave her whole life. That's what the Greek actually says, her bios, her whole life. And that's what Jesus commends, is the giving of her whole self, the opening of her heart. This is one reason that the ideal circumstances for giving things away is in the context of personal relationships. Nothing against organizations or foundations. They can do good systematic work. But it's ultimately in face-to-face encounter that we begin to learn one of the subsidiary purposes of Jesus' teaching on money. And that's this. When we bind our hearts to God as our only security through detaching ourselves of our possessions, then we are both freed and obliged to enter into a communion of mutual interdependency with others. Maybe I'll say that again. When we detach ourselves of our possessions and rely fully on God, then we're both freed and obliged to enter into relationships of mutual interdependence, of communion with those around us. Frees us for that. That's sort of what the church is supposed to be, by the way. Not an organization, but an organism. An organism of redeemed lives that have been grafted together in face-to-face communion by the husbandry of Christ's charity to us. In other words, when I receive Jesus' generosity toward me, it should open my heart to 
to welcome all the Lazaruses around me and to recognize that in all the ways that most matter, I am every bit as poor as Lazarus is. And that brings us to the third and final piece of counsel I have. Love poverty. Love poverty. Now that sounds strange. Sounds strange especially to an activist world that thinks all present suffering can and should be eliminated. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should in any sense be complacent with a situation where some go hungry and others are well fed. What I mean is that poverty, rightly understood, is the ultimate beatitude, the first in both lists in Matthew and Luke. To love poverty means to recognize that without God, we are literally nothing. To love poverty means to be open-handed with all the things we habitually use, whether our possessions, our powers, or our plans, the things we habitually use to pretend that we are in control, that we are self-sufficient, that our lives and our livelihood depend wholly on what we do. To love poverty means to be stripped naked of all that might insulate us from the immediacy of our dependency on Jesus, and thus to begin to taste the delights of the divine nuptial chamber to which we are bound. Lazarus is you, and Lazarus is me. Every Sunday, we come to the gate of heaven here at this altar begging for crumbs that fall from the master's table. The good news, friends, is that the true rich man did not stay behind his heavenly gate. He came out, got down on the ground with us, meets us here at this altar, is placed into our hands so that he can pick us up in his arms and bring us to his heavenly table. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. If Jesus did that for you, what might you do for the next Lazarus who comes knocking at your door? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.